Hello. You're on with Nick and Fiona. Trump is the system without a mask, without disguise. This is what you Welcome get. Welcome to the playlist where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Bassine. Nick, what are we talking about today? Fiona, today we're talking about documentaries. There's a big documentary festival coming through town, The Power of the Documentary, curated by John Pilger. And so we're going to talk about documentaries we love, why we love them so much. And then you had a chance to speak to John Pilger, and so we're going to lead into that interview. And then, of course, what we've been watching, which for me is Outlaw King with Chris Pine. It's a Netflix original movie. And for me, uh, in keeping with the theme of today's show, it's a documentary called uh, The Coming Back Out Ball. But first, documentaries. Now, this film festival, it has lots of different kinds of documentaries in it, from the heavy to the light. Are any of your favorites in there? Well, there is one that I had the chance to see called The War Game, which hasn't been shown in many places because it was actually banned for quite some time, made for the BBC in 1965. And it is a documentary because it's so factual and it documents what would happen in the event of a nuclear attack on Britain in the 1960s, in the height of the Cold War. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, you know this one? Yeah, so I was lucky to see it. I was, I was at uni, I think, so it's going back a little while. Uh, and I saw it in a cinema in Paddington in Sydney. It's incredible. Yeah, just yeah. watching it and knowing the impact it had as well. We've mentioned this festival. It's called The Power of the Documentary and it's, they're all impactful films that, you know, have really made an impact. Um, and, yeah, that, that film just, it's incredible. So it's, it's not one of my favourite documentaries of all time, but also in this festival is That Sugar Film. Yeah. Which is... Um, Friend of the show, Damon Gamow. Yeah, we've had him on the show. The movie's been on SBS On Demand. It was super impactful because of it, it led to a... Or it helped lead to a transformation in my life where I started eating a lot less sugar. And it was very eye-opening. And I learned a whole bunch of stuff I, I, I didn't know. I, I now treat um, sugar like... Uh, well, like the poison that it is. The documentaries I love... They always have something super surprising. Mm. Show me something in a way I haven't seen it before or just something totally new. And I don't know. I feel like the ones that I love the most, I feel like I've been shaken up by the end of it. And that was the, that was the case with that one. Mm. When film festivals roll around, say Sydney, Melbourne, you know, Adelaide, I love watching documentaries with audiences. Also when they're in release, I guess. <laughs> but there's, there's something about watching it in an audience that, especially some of these ones that unravel before you and like that, they, they sort of take you on a journey and tell a tale. We've we've spoken about three identical strangers that came out earlier. I was this going year. to mention I was that. About that one, yeah. Yes, that, those kind of films. That, did you see that with, with an audience? Yeah, I did. Yeah, oh, Sydney Film Festival. I saw a yeah. screener. Yeah, yeah, not the same. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you still loved it. Yeah, I've spoken before. The Imposter, another one like that, where you react as a group <laughs> to just the revelations that go out on screen. Another one, a similar experience of The Act of Killing. Have you seen that one? The that was uh, also on my list. Okay. Okay. That was a very upsetting um, movie to watch. Yes. This is Joshua Oppenheimer's film from a few years back about Indonesian genocide, speaking to and interacting with former members of death squads who reenact their murders as performance art almost. Yeah, an incredible film. So I watched um, Act of Killing by myself. I prefer to watch everything by myself. <laughs> I have long um, given up on what I once deemed the uh, 
the sanctity of the theatre experience. Is that because people can be the worst and it's the people around you talking and on yeah. their phones and all that garbage? Yes. yes. and I, That's fair. With the possible exception of comedy, although even that now, you know, you, you think the, the laugh laughter can be contagious and you laugh with people and and that can be good. But uh, even even with comedies, I, I prefer to be laughing alone. I, I don't need other people laughing to tell me when to laugh. Oh, God, no. Yes, same. And I think because these films, and it's only documentaries where I think that these ones that I've listed happen to be ones I saw in communal experiences in a theatre because also they're not the type of films you would pull out your phone and be second screening or like yes. they are impactful documentaries. So yeah, yeah. that's probably why the experience has been good because everyone is leaning forward in their seats and gasping and riveted by what's going on. So yeah. yeah. I can't even remember the last documentary I saw in the theatre. I the super serious stuff where you're gasping and, oh, my God, you can't believe it, you're shaking. I also like one of my favorite documentaries is um, the Buena Vista Social Club. Uh, yeah. Vim Vendor's documentary about the group of Cuban uh, musicians getting together for a last concert. Not a, oh, no, no, sorry, not a last no, they concert. Very they that was going. another movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that, I, I was vaguely familiar with the music before I saw it, and then um, it became a ubiquitous soundtrack. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing the songs, <laughs> but it, it turned me on to a kind of music and a whole bunch of people and just a, it changed the kind of music I listened to. <laughs> and it was because of how it presented this group of people and and the, the kind of people they were and the kind of music they were playing. <laughs> I mean, that was just transformative. And so, and stuff like that where it's, it's not life and death and it's not a, a horrible horror show, which I do enjoy. Like the, the Metallica one, um, oh, yeah. Some kind of monster that shows you a different side. I, I don't like Metallica's music. I like a couple of songs, but it's not really my thing. And but watching the band and how they relate to each other and how and getting on in age and how they still get it together for the performances, that kind of stuff is really fascinating. So a different look at something that you think you know something about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you might think it's a concert film or something, but there's there's yeah. so much more going on. Yeah. What's your? Do you have a top favorite one? Well, like Thin Blue Line is incredible and yes. because I saw it young and it was eye-opening and, you know, it had real-world impact, Yeah, Errol Morris's film and, yeah, just the beauty, the way it's put together. It's a gorgeous film. You know, you can lump it in with a true crime kind of genre bucket but yeah. it's – and that's fine but it's so artful in the way it tells the story of a miscarriage of justice. I think it's an incredible film. Would you put OJ, the OJ documentary in this? Oscar-winning documentary. Emmy-winning as well. It got the EO. Yeah, that's yes. right. OJ Made in America. Yeah. Yes. Incredible films about, you know, the murder in the times and just it set its the scene of its subject with such precision. Yeah, they were incredible, those. It was a four-part four part feature length. Right, yeah. which is why it was, it was up for both film. awards. Yes, true, because it was a series. It was so wide and then also so narrow mm. because it's about his life, but it's also about all of Los Angeles and race relations and in uh, the U.S. Uh, yeah, just a tremendous experience. So this is something that we lived through. We mm. we watched the, well, did you watch the car chase? Yes. Did it ha- Was it happening while you were... Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. feel like I watched. I've seen the footage so often. <laughs> Maybe I didn't, but because I, I, I was, like I, I was watching a basketball game and they cut in. Ah, that there's a great thirty for thirty about that. Yeah. 
the day and just how the networks were all crisscrossing because there was a lot of going, lot going on that day. Yes. Anyway, I digress. Go on. But while it was happening, and I've, I've read books about race relations in LA and, and I, was, I was alive and it, there was news about riots and things, everything that was happening um, in the early 90s. But seeing it all put together almost 30 years later, mm. I mean, it, it was just a, a new riveting perspective on stuff you've lived through. I think that that is also about the, the power of the documentary. Mm. Well, we could sit here and talk great documentaries all day. Yeah, we haven't even talked about Hearts of Darkness. No. There's a lot we haven't talked <laughs> about, but uh, we bring this up, of course, because uh, of this film festival called The Power of the Documentary. And I apologise, it is a little Sydney-centric. It's on uh, throughout in a couple of locations in Sydney. No need to apologise, I live in Sydney. <laughs> oh, that's all right. <laughs> yeah. Apologising to our national and international listeners even. But there are some incredible films in here and they are curated by John Pilger, who, as you may know, as you should know, is uh, Australia's preeminent documentary filmmaker who has made a career out of finding fault with official positions of government and, you know, exposing the truth behind the lies that we're told. For instance, you know, he was in Vietnam in the early days uh, getting testimony from American soldiers on the ground about what the war was really like and what they were facing over there, which made a lie of the everything's fine, we're going to win this, we're getting out yeah. soon, you know, where have we heard that before? You know, looking at the official fiction, really. So John Pilger's films are peppered throughout this festival. You can see that film in Vietnam called The Quiet Mutiny. One of his early films I was exposed to in uni, uh, Death of a Nation, about East Timor, and that was sort of my first awareness of what what had happened and what was still going on at that point in East Timor. I had a very agitated uh, media lecturer who... Uh, oh put on Death of a Nation and yeah, it was opened my eyes. And you you had a chance to talk to John Pilger. Yes. Let's take a listen. John Pilger, thank you so much for joining us on the playlist. It's a real pleasure to talk Very to you. Very welcome. And congratulations on the festival, The Power of Documentary. So uh, obviously it's a testament to The Power of Documentary. Um, what was the driving force in selecting the films that, that would accompany your own in this festival? How did you go about that? I looked at films that told us something perhaps we didn't know that helped us make a sense of the world today by looking back at the past because the past always informs the present and films that knock down facades. There is so much uh, what I would call acceptable propaganda today right across certainly in the media, but right across social media. And it's part of the onslaught of information, but much of this information is repetitive and not really informing us mm-hmm. and giving us different perspectives of looking behind the facade of the way power systems work, of the way... Uh, politicians pretend mm-hmm. uh, and the way we're manipulated much of the time. So that's why the subsidiary title to the festival is Breaking the Silence. I think all of these films in their own way break a silence. Mm-hmm. Can you single out, I guess as a viewer first, like a lasting memory of when the power of documentary hit home to you? When it hit home for me was mm. when, yeah. when I made my first one. It mm-hmm. bowled me over. <laughs> <laughs> I I was a newspaper journalist. Mm. And uh, although I was working for 
a major popular newspaper in the UK, the London Mirror, and I was uh, their war reporter at the time. I made my first documentary, which is the first one showing in the festival, called The Quiet Mutiny. Mm. And what bowled me over was the reaction from, yes, from the audience, but mainly from, let's say, was generally called the establishment. Mm -hmm. I realized then that the power of documentary, certainly I have to say the power of television. I mean, television... Television and cinema, but they're different. Tele- television, perhaps in those days when there weren't the distractions of social media and television was really the center of media life. And of course, television still is our main source of information. That's true in Australia and, and over here. But the response was immediate. I was... Uh, described as a dangerous subversive Mm. by the U.S. ambassador to Britain and all kinds of badges of honor that I've been uh, very happy to wear. In fact, I hand them out to all the filmmakers in this festival. Sure. That was the reaction. It was immediate and powerful. And, and that was in 1970, wasn't it? That was That's obviously yes. your film about the Vietnam War. You know, in 1970, making the case that the Vietnam War was, you know, seeing the logical conclusion that would, that would go to if the soldiers were um, telling you the kind of stories they were. Can you talk about that, sort of what, what led you over there and, and just the experience of getting the soldiers to open up um, about the realities of it that they well, were Well, I was already there. I'd been mm. reporting the war for a few years for my newspaper. Mm. So I had uh, researched, if you like, this story for some time. Mm. And it was my colleagues and I put it up to ITV here and they accepted it. So I'd already spent quite some time with young drafted soldiers. And what changed in Vietnam was the arrival of Uh, what they call the 1968 generation. These were drafted soldiers who came from the turmoil in the United States in the late 1960s that was very much opposed to continuing the Vietnam War. So these soldiers were a kind of imported rebellion. Mm -hmm. And once they had begun their years tour in Vietnam, uh, many of them became very active rebels and very violent rebels. Getting them to open up wasn't too difficult if you spent time with them, which Mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. That is, you went out on patrol with them or you were on their bases with them. It wasn't difficult. Many of them, what I did in the film was I interviewed several of those who had taken part in certain, let's say, violent acts against officers. Mm. But I changed it round, or or they did the interview as if referring to a third person. So in that way, they were able to disguise their identity. They very much wanted to speak about this because they felt so strongly Mm. that... uh, the enlisted officer class saw very little 
of the actual fighting and they regarded themselves, the drafted men, as simply fodder in the war. It's an old story about wars, of course, but in Vietnam you had a very articulate and political generation arriving to oppose it from within. So the whole edifice of the U.S. military in uh, Vietnam started to crumble from within, and there were a number of divisions that they never sent into any form of battle because they were so worried that, that the senior officers were so worried that they they simply wouldn't fight. Mm-hmm. So it was a very dramatic time, and I think that rebellion was the beginning of the end of the Vietnam War, which of course took another five years mm-hmm. before the U.S. finally withdrew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talking about the impact of your films and certainly the public response to some of them, I'd love to get your take on the outpouring that met Year Zero, your, your film about Cambodia and the fall mm. of the Khmer Rouge. And, and can we talk about that, sort of what that was like? Well, certainly, yeah, what, what happened in, in, in the wake of that film going to air? Well, you going back to your first question about the impact, I don't think... Uh, I, I yeah, There has been other impacts. Uh, films, obviously, but I don't think any really compares with that. didn't take me altogether by surprise, but it was quite extraordinary. I had a parallel career for a long time. I worked for my newspaper and I made television documentaries. And I published, mine was the the first reporting, substantial reporting from, I suppose, the killing fields of Cambodia in the immediate aftermath of the Pol Pot uh, horrors. Mm. So everything was really petrified and raw and terrible. My newspaper in London devoted two issues to it and devoted the, the whole first issue to my report and the photographs. Those, I think, were the among the very few issues of the paper that sold out, which is heartening, mm-hmm. as all the, the regular features, the light-hearted material had been taken out. That was in the September of 1979. In October, my film... Year Zero, The Silent Death of Cambodia, was shown on the ITV network here and immediately afterwards, incidentally, on Channel 9 in uh, Australia without commercials. It's the only time that that's happened. And I have to say it was shown without commercials in Australia, which is astonishing Mm -hmm. when you look back. And the reaction to both the newspapers and television among the public was, I don't know, like an outpouring. It was quite extraordinary. After the film went out in the first post, you must remember this is Mm pre-digital, no email. In the first post, something like 26,000 letters arrived at ITV's offices with, in very small amounts, the equivalent of several million pounds in them. Mm. Uh, People gave their wages, their pensions, 
everything they gave it was very salutary. Most of the money for Cambodia came from those who could afford a lease to give. It raised unsolicited, and I hadn't asked for any money, neither had ITB. It raised in dollars, in US dollars, about $55 million, Mm. a lot of money in those days. Mm. The newspaper articles alone financed the first humanitarian flights into Cambodia. So the two really, very interesting, both the the effect of the newspaper article and the effect of the film merged and produced this great public reaction. The BBC, which was the opposition, of course, to ITV, dropped its opposition and its major children's program started a campaign in schools across this country, which raised, among children, over a million pounds. I was sort of incredulous a lot of this, moved by it, mm. and it reminded me something that I've never forgotten, that is the basic humanity of people, and that people are interested in faraway countries if they are able, if they're given the opportunity to relate to them directly. And I think the film certainly set out to do that. Mm, definitely. And has that sort of been a, a guiding principle ever since then? It obviously left a, a huge impression it would do. Yes, it has. I think it has been right even before that. Mm, I've, I've always regarded being a journalist as informing people and bringing the lives of others into the lives of readers and viewers. So in a way that they will understand never patronizing people, mm-hmm. which too much media does, and with its stereotypes and so on. But yeah. And the appreciation that comes back from audiences is very gratifying for that. Mm. And as we speak here tonight, we're on the eve of the um, American midterm elections. Um, we don't know which way that's going to go, but it's a time where empathy is lacking in in a lot of the political discourse. And, you know, it's such a heavily toxic environment in which telling the objective truth, you know, has journalists branded the enemies of the state. And I'm sure you can throw in documentary filmmakers to that as well. You know, you've seen a lot of things in your career and you're not afraid to speak truth to power. What is the way here? (laughs) Um, You know, what's your take on the current climate? And uh, not specific to America either. I mean, it's, you know, there's a bit of a wave happening. I think the current climate, and it's not just the United States, Mm. but the current climate is the sum of all the other climates. And one of the mistakes we, and I say journalists, certainly are making is to regard the Trump period as especially extraordinary. It's a continuation. Trump is a caricature of the system, but uh, there were all his predecessors were... (laughs) Mm-hmm. were the embodiment of the system. Trump didn't fall out of the sky. You know, the United States has been pursuing its rapacious policies around the world for a very long time. Trump, um, it's, a, it's quite a huge mistake, actually, for people to concentrate on one personality. It's very difficult, I know, because in a way, 
Trump as, as kind of grotesquely entertaining. And that's why the media are drawn to him in many ways. But in terms of his presidency, it's not the most violent presidency. The others that went before Obama and George W. Bush were more violent. I'm not sure what that tells us, but what we need to learn from Trump is that he has upset the system, if you like, by taking off the mask. Mm. This is the system without a mask. Before it had masks, mm -hmm. the Obama mask was probably the most persuasive mask. Mm -hmm. Obama left seven wars around the world and a, a record of violence that should be acknowledged. Trump is the system without a mask, without disguise. This is what you get. It's grotesque. It's all that you see. Mm -hmm. But I think we really have to examine where he came from and why this has happened. These are very insecure days, and Australia is part of this. There's no reason that Australia should be insecure. It's probably the safest society in the world. But somehow its politicians have made it insecure by threatening its largest trading partner. In terms of news, you know, the biggest news recently was the withdrawal of the United States from the Intermediate Nuclear Weapons Treaty. Mm -hmm. That's been the front line for stopping the great powers firing nuclear weapons at each other. The U.S. has dropped that. The U.S. has wanted to drop that for a very long time, and under Trump, it has happened. It's that that we really should be understanding, perhaps above all, because you mm -hmm. know, there's, a, there's a nuclear war, all the other issues uh, have no point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think people understand that. You know, there is a terrible insecurity among people, even people who are, are not impoverished. But, of course, most of the insecurity is in the divisions of society among all those at the bottom who are impoverished. And this is where I have to say, and I bring in a plug for the documentary, I think the documentary can help us to make sense of that. I think it's the one form of communication of journalism that can make sense of news that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It can offer a perspective. It can ask us to stand back. And I make that plea for more documentaries. Television has fallen into the trap of using, thinking the documentary is a reality show a lot of the time, and it isn't. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned um, the nuclear treaty, and if we go down that path, then everything else is kind of a moot point. That, mm. you know, reminds me of The War Game, which is screening in the festival, um, that incredible yeah. film from 1965. Can we talk about that, sort of what impact that film had on you and certainly to the extent that you, that you want to include it in, in this festival? You know, I, I sat in my sitting room here the other night and watched it again. Mm. It astonished me again. It is absolutely brilliant, almost perfect film. It's a reconstruction, but that's still documentary. And it's based on fact. It's utterly authentic. And the campaign to ban it 
by the British government in the 1960s. It was commissioned by the BBC, as I'm sure you know, and not shown for 23 years mm. on television, even though it won an Academy Award. And, and even though the government acknowledged that it was based entirely on official documentation of what would happen to a community, and this community is in Kent, south of London, when a thermonuclear weapon landed. I would show it in schools. Mm -hmm. It is right up to date. Even the look of people is not dated. It's the look of shock and horror and suffering, but it's, it's something that's very watchable and it's connected directly to the abandonment of this important treaty between the US and the Soviet Union. It's connected directly to China now feeling so defensive that it's raised its nuclear alert from low alert to high alert. That's hardly been used at all. Mm. The provocation towards this kind of confrontation, which of course can happen by accident, as Neville Shute's wonderful book on the beat mm, yeah. demonstrated to us, we are just moving into that sphere of possible accident happening because the provocation is so great. And the war game made by filmmaker Peter Watkins. I was in touch with him before the festival. It's showing, it's the only documentary showing in the festival, free, entry is free. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is <laughs> the BBC has demanded that so bizarrely, mm -hmm. but I'm very glad they have because there's no reason not to see it. And uh, if you can get along to it. It's such a, it was so prescient in every way. Mm. And that's what I mean by documentaries making sense of things, making sense of today. Yeah. On a lot of issues, not to be flippant, but you know, you're, you're kind of our canary in the coal mine and um, the power of your documentaries may take a little while to be fully realised, sort of some of the, you know, you've been proved right, <laughs> sadly, mm. um, many times over the years. How do you measure the impact of your films? And certainly how do you weigh up going into something knowing that this is what you want to embark on next? Well, I'm, I'm never – there's really no – there's no scientific way of mm. measuring them, sure. of course, <laughs> uh, um, and claims about their impact are always suspicious about. <laughs> uh, but the fact that, for instance, here my films go out after the news on ITV at 10.30 and they run for over an hour and a half and they start usually with about 4 million viewers and more than half those people hang on till after midnight. Mm -hmm. Others will record it. That's one particular measure which says to me that people are interested in serious films. I think I'm always so, in answer to your question, I'm always so concerned about getting the film funded, made, and shown that I sort of, I leave the reaction to take care of itself. Sure. Really. Yep. I can't, can't begin to worry about that. I'm just raising the money for these <laughs> films now can take up to a year. So in other words, I'm confident 
that a documentary that tells people something they might not have known or they might not have thought about in a particular way is going to get a, a positive reaction from a audience. Sure. One thing we like to ask, I guess, on the show, um, what, what they've been watching, sort of what do you do when you're not making films and, and what, what have you been watching lately that stood out to you for better or worse? What have I been watching? Mm. Well, um, I'm always looking for great comedy and satire and mm -hmm. that's one of my, my complaints is that it's gone away. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it is, but it's not around. Um, what's the best example you can... What's well, I like watching love? Sean McCullough in Australia, yeah, right. I must yeah. say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's, he's, <laughs> he's quite outstanding. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, we so desperately need satire. I'm, you know, I've seen some interesting, I've seen some interesting films lately, but I'm critical of them, I suppose, because they, again, they run to a formula. So much is running to a formula these days. <laughs> I don't watch as much television as I used to. In fact, I watch very little of it because a lot of it is not very good. Mm -hmm. Or to be charitable, a lot of it is not what I want to watch. Um, and I think one of the problems people face today is the time, their time is in demand by so many things, social media, television is probably the last thing they watch. Newspapers are right down the end. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that is... And I'm not sure that is helping. I, I feel these days there is a, a huge amount of awareness about what is going on. People are much more aware than they used to be, but they're confused, disorientated almost about what to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with the fragmented state of all the things that have a call on their time particularly coming out of their phone. Mm -hmm. um, so before I start a, a long speech about all of that or <laughs> continue it, I'll stop there. And that doesn't answer, that doesn't answer your question. <laughs> so okay. I'm evading the question. You are very skillfully, but uh, <laughs> it was all about the journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, look, thank you so much, John Pilger. And I will see you at the festival. I'm coming along to a lot of them. So, yes, can't wait until, um, until it all takes place. Um, thank you so oh, much. Very good. Thank you. Very nice to speak to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow, I really dodged your um, what have you been watching question. <laughs> yes, I don't think John Pilger would have stood for that in an interview situation. So The Power of the Documentary is on from the 28th of November till the 9th of December. So we have no idea what Pilger's been watching, <laughs> but what have you been watching? What have I been watching? Well, like I said, uh, it's all about documentaries for me this week. I caught a local documentary, which is in cinemas next week, called The Coming Back Out Ball. Right. So this premiered at the Melbourne International Film Festival, and you should see it. It's great. It yeah. is about elders in the LGBTQI plus community who, for various reasons, didn't have their moment of coming out. They're ageing now, so it wasn't the time to have a sure. big celebratory coming out. They were probably fighting for rights. <laughs> um, have never stopped, really. And so it was an event held at Melbourne's Town Hall, and 
it's a ball to celebrate, acknowledge, welcome. Yeah, like it's gorgeous. It's a really sounds very nice. Yeah, and yeah. and it also tackles issues that are coming to the fore as people age, and also divisions with labels and people. You know, it's not all it's not all harmonious because there are so many issues at play here because it's such a diverse community. Everyone's right. everyone's got different priorities. So yeah, it's it's. A gorgeous film, though, so I would encourage people to watch it. Fantastic. It's quite delightful. What have you been watching? So I watched um, the Netflix original movie Outlaw King, which stars Chris Pine as Robert the Bruce Mm -hmm. in the turn of the late or turn of the 13th century Scotland. Mm -hmm. It kind of... uh, Chris Pine, you say? Chris Pine of Star Trek fame. I know him. And of... um, what else has he been in? He this was means in Hello High Water. Yes. Well, it's funny you this should mention that <laughs> because uh, this is a re-teaming of the Hell and High Water team. Is it? It's David McKenzie. And uh, because I, I liked Hell or High Water. Yeah, I think it's great. Although there's some questionable, um, these uh, good old boys are the real Americans type of stuff, which mm-hmm. I don't always uh, cotton to. But, uh, but it's good. It's very good. And um, there's a great song at the end of it. So I was expecting a little bit more from this, and I, I did not uh, didn't really like it. Is Chris Pine putting on a Scottish accent? He's got a Scottish accent. Oh, he's got a mullet. Well, I mean, it's just any if you've ever seen a version of a, a Braveheart type movie where it's um, chainmail and swords and shields, mm-hmm. you've seen this movie. There's absolutely nothing new. I mean, it's, I guess it's, they're upping the violence. More so than a Mel Gibson movie. Well, there's, you know, blood and guts spilling out all over the place. Pretty gross. Which I'm not that into generally. And otherwise, it's just not. I can honestly say I've never heard of it. So in, in preparation to uh, talk about this, I took a look at other Netflix original movies. I haven't heard of most of them. And I started wondering about, well, how the how are they marketing these things? How do people find out about them? I guess it's showing up in my home screen because mm. I um, have watched Braveheart 25 times. <laughs> Well, I haven't. I haven't. Mm-hmm. But um, no. But I was raving about Roma a couple of weeks ago. That's right, being so, called a Netflix original. But it's the not. The Ballad right? of Buster Scruggs is now available on Netflix as well. But so they're those... acquiring films, and then they become Netflix yes. originals. Yeah. I mean, what's what's Oakja? Is that a Netflix original? Yeah. Yeah. And Beasts of No Nation. Those are the good ones. And speaking it's of documentaries, branding. they've got it. They'll call it that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But there's so many of them that just look terrible. They do seem to just pump them out, yes. And I've either, yeah, I've never heard of them or, and I just became just confused by the whole strategy. I can't figure out what is going on at Netflix. Some of them are fantastic, but so many are just, I guess they're very carefully calibrated with their algorithm algorithm. to reach certain people like that, um, to all the boys I've loved before. That uh, That was good. That YA one. Mm. And why Adam Sandler movies do so well. But anyway, yeah, it's not. It's just not. Uh, that movie wasn't anything special. Okay. A little bit of a, a little bit of a low energy beat to end it on. Yeah, we've been talking about the power of documentary, and you're kind of just proving it by watching it crap. I loved Buena Vista Social Club. Social Club. <laughs> well, that's it for our show. Make sure you subscribe to SBS the playlist wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us some stars, some kind words. It helps people find the show. If you want to get in touch, you can follow the show on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies. I'm on Twitter at Nick Bassine. I'm on Twitter at Anything But Fifi. The playlist is produced by Dan Barrett with editing and mixing by Jeremy Wilmot. Until next week. 
Thanks for listening. 